In episode 528 with Peter Singer, we are talking all about animal liberation, animal welfare, and what we can do to make a difference to animals, to the planet, to our own health as well. Plus, so much more. This is a very important conversation. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this conversation because it is one that we all need to hear. It's something that a lot of us might turn a blind eye to, but it is very important for animal welfare, for the planet, and for our health. And for those of you that have never heard of Peter, he has been described as the world's most influential philosopher. Like that is a huge title. Now he was born in Melbourne in 1946 and he has been a professor of bioethics at Princeton University since 1999. His many books include Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics, The Life You Can Save, The Most Good You Can Do, The Ethics in the Real World, and in 2023, he published Animal Liberation Now, a fully revised and updated version of the 1975 original. His writings have also inspired the movement known as Effective Altruism, which he talks about in this episode, and he is the founder of the charity The Life You Can Save. In 2021, he was awarded a $1 million prize for philosophy and culture, which he donated to nonprofit organizations working for the causes he supports. How beautiful is that? And in 2023, he received the Fountainers of Knowledge Prize for Humanities from the Spanish BBVR Foundation. Pretty amazing. This man is phenomenal. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 528. Now let's dive in. Peter, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, I had my standard breakfast, which is a bowl of muesli with some fresh fruit and with soy milk. Beautiful. Now, nearly 50 years ago, you wrote the book on animal liberation. You revealed what life was like for animals in factory farms and what really went on with animal testing in labs. So for my generation, we've grown up knowing at least something about animal testing. We've all seen our makeup and skincare products that say cruelty-free or against animal testing. But back when you wrote that book, this was brand new. For many people, this was the very first time ever that they had been exposed to the realities of animal welfare. And the book stirred up a lot of conversation and also controversy. It was such an important and seminal book. So my first question for you is why did you decide to rewrite it and re-release it and why now? 
Well, I felt that I needed to rewrite and re-release the book because it was just getting seriously out of date. It was published in 1975. I brought out a second edition in 1990. But since then, although publishers had said there's a third and fourth edition or whatever, but really they just stuck a new preface on it and it wasn't revised. So that if you, for example, turn to the chapter on animal experiments and you wanted to know what is happening to animals in labs today in the 21st century, you would find nothing because the experiments were all from the 1980s or earlier. And with factory farming too, there'd been lots of changes. So I felt people needed to know what's happening to animals now. I didn't want the book just to become a kind of historical relic. I wanted to still be influencing people. But I also wanted to show people that some progress has been made and you know we shouldn't feel powerless or despair although things are still really bad on a, and on a vast scale, there have been places where progress has been made. So I think that should encourage us to want to move ahead and be part of a movement to bring about change. That's beautiful to hear that progress has been made because it can feel like, is anything happening out there? And yes, you have confirmed that it is. So for most of us on a day-to-day level, the most important decision that we can make when it comes to animal welfare is what we choose to eat. I know for lots of people, the idea of cutting out animal products can seem very daunting, which can lead people to start thinking, well, you know, if I can't be perfect at it all, like what's the point of even trying? So what's your take on this? Do small improvements still count? Yes, I think this idea that if I can't be perfect, I shouldn't do anything at all is really a very negative impact. I think people need to not look at being perfect. None of us are completely perfect, but rather say, what can I do? Am I part of the change or am I part of the problem? Am I moving in the right direction? Am I setting an example and encouraging others to move in the right direction? And even if you don't succeed in completely eliminating animal products, it's not that difficult, for example, to avoid the factory farm products, to avoid those things that come out of these enormous concentrated animal feeding operations, as they're sometimes called, uh, tens of thousands of animals in a single shed or enclosure, very crowded, a miserable life for the animals, really bad for the environment, for pollution, for greenhouse. So you can get away from that. You can look for animal products that have been from free-ranging animals, and that's better. You know, it's still not ideal. I'm not pretending that these things are absolutely fine, but it is better for animals. It's better for the environment. It's better for you. So I would say start with reducing your animal consumption, and these better products are going to cost you more, but the way to not worry too much about that is just to eat fewer of them, to regard them as, as just something you eat twice a week rather than seven days a week, for example, and enjoy the plant-based products that are so easy to find and uh, don't have all of these animal welfare and environmental problems. Mm-hmm. Two really amazing things that we can start to do today is exactly that. I love it. Make sure we're not buying factory-farmed products and reduce the amount of times. Like we don't need to be eating animal products three times a day or even five times a day. If we have 
a morning tea snack. And if we have afternoon tea, we don't need to be eating them at every single meal. So those two things are a great place for people to start. But talking about things like factory farming and animal cruelty can be very upsetting that many people find it difficult to even talk about. And they will just turn a blind eye, they will switch off. How do we work around this? How do we make sure that more people are engaging in this important conversation and not just putting it in the too hard basket conversation? Well, I think we can be positive about the alternatives. I think we can be positive about eating food that is wholesome and nutritious and, and doesn't cost the earth, feeling good on that kind of diet. And, you know, lots of people do. I certainly do. I've been a vegetarian for more than 50 years now and, you know, moved gradually towards being vegan. So I think it's great. I enjoy cooking it. You know, you don't have these smelly pieces of dead animals lying around that I remember used to. And there's lots of great food. You explore different cuisines. You know, if you've been cooking in a traditionally uh, Western or European way, then probably meat is largely the center of your meal. But if you start thinking about Asian forms of cooking, whether it's Chinese or Thai or Japanese, Indian, or if Middle Eastern, there's lots of ways of cooking. You know, Mediterranean diets, even Italian, of course, has a lot, a lot of pasta and vegetables in it. So start thinking about those meals differently. Uh, and I think you'll probably end up enjoying your food more, feeling better. And also, of course, it's good to know that you're the way you're living is in harmony with your values. And people do know about factory farming, even if they don't want, you know, all of the nasty details. If you have that residual feeling of, oh, you know, I don't want to think about how these animals who I'm eating actually lived and died, well, there's probably something bad going on. So better to get rid of that and say, look, I'm part of the change. I'm part of the, the positive move in the right direction. Absolutely. Most government eating guidelines like the food pyramid that my generation grew up with to the current framework used in the US known as my plate specifically mention meat. Is the meat industry a powerful lobby group? Have they conditioned us to believe in things that we're not even aware of? Well, certainly the meat industry is a huge lobby group and that's true in the United States, where they have a big influence on what the food pyramid or it looks like or the, however it's construed now. And in Australia as well, uh, of course, there's still concern about offending the so-called farmers, although the factory farmers I don't really think of as farmers. They're industrial animal producers. But I think actually we're making progress there. I think there has been a better understanding of nutrition and it's not quite as blatant as what you talked about. Your generation, I guess my generation is still another generation or so back. And yeah, it used to really be the idea. In fact, when I became vegetarian, there were a lot of people who said, well, where will you get your protein? You know, how can you, how can you live without meat? But people don't say that anymore. I think there's a recognition. There are more uh, vegetarians and vegans around, and there's a recognition that they are healthy, that they don't suffer, in fact, from as much from heart disease and from cancers of the digestive system. So I think there's greater acceptance that you don't need to eat these animal products and that you may well be better off without them. Is it possible to eat meat and do no harm or at least minimise harm if people are sticklers for sourcing meat from small-scale 
ethical farms with good practices, is that okay? In other words, is it possible to be a kind of conscious omnivore? Uh, Yeah, I talk about that a little bit in the book. It's possible. It's difficult because you can't always believe what you're told or reading on the label. You really need to go along and look at these places. And depending where you live, that may be difficult, may not be. You certainly need to call up places and, you know, say, can I come and have a look? And if they say no, sometimes they say no, we can't because of, you know, we're worried about biosecurity. But I think that's generally not true. And especially with those who really have their animals outdoors, they develop a a greater immunity anyway to what's going on around them. So uh, ask if you can if you can go and have a look, and uh, if they say no, that's a reason to be suspicious. So it's possible, but it's it's difficult. I think it's not the easiest thing to do. Probably the product that is easiest to get that's reasonably ethical would be free range eggs, and you can look at the carton. In Australia now, a lot of the cartons will tell you how many hens per hectare they have if they if they are being free range. Um, the legal maximum here in Victoria, where I am now, is 10,000 hens per hectare, which is really, I think, too much. But there are others which will tell you they have 1,500 hens or even uh, you know, fewer than 1,000. Well, I think those hens are having a reasonable life. They're, they're not going to live out their full life because once their rate of laying drops off, they'll get killed. And of course, the male chicks of the laying breeds are going to get killed immediately um, once they're sexed. But you could say there's a compromise. At least the hens themselves are having a, a decent life. Um, and if you really want to eat eggs, then that's they're the best eggs to eat. Mm-hmm. Large-scale farming of plants, grains, and crops can still harm animals and the planet. Like insects are sprayed, rodents are poisoned, animals considered pests are killed, wild animals lose their habitats when farmlands are cleared, commercial monocultures threatened, natural biodiversity, and the list goes on. Is this just a lesser evil that we have to live with in order to feed the 7 billion people who live on this planet? Is there an answer to this? Well, again, actually, the answer to so much of agricultural land being used to produce crops is to stop eating factory farmed animals, because the majority of these crops is actually being fed to animals. And when we feed crops to animals, we waste the majority of the food value of those crops. Uh, the worst example is, is feeding grains to beef cattle because we get back uh, less than 10% of the food value. Whether you're talking about calories or protein, you're wasting more than 90% of what you're feeding. And you know, this, is, this is true of the majority of the maize that's grown in the world, and it's a large part of the wheat crop. And you know, when you talk about soybeans, I've had some people who say to me, you know, when I talk about having soy milk or um, or eating tofu, they say, "Oh, but you know, it's so bad. There's so much soybean grown because it's they're clearing the Amazon jungle in Brazil to grow more soybeans." It's true that they are clear, clearing those jungles to grow soybeans, but 77% of the world's soybean crop is fed to animals, and then some of it is used for, you know, other purposes, but the, it's a very small minority that actually is used to make uh, soy milk or, or tofu or tempeh. So again, if you're eating the soy directly, you're not contributing nearly as much to clearing the Amazon as if you're eating animal products 
where the majority, more than three quarters of the world's soy has gone to feed those animals, wasting most of the food value of this high protein and nutritious plant product. Food for thought. Very interesting, right? Definitely, yes. Yes, a lot of people don't know this and uh, really they need to know it and they need, especially if they're concerned about the environment, they need to think more about what they're eating. Yes, exactly. Like you said, most of that is going to the animals in factory farms. So it's really important that we hear this information. And before you mentioned that for around 50 years, you have been vegetarian and vegan. Talk to us about that. How do you feel? I'm sure you've experienced many people say that that's not sustainable for you. I want to hear your experience. How has that been for you? And why have you dabbled between vegetarian and veganism and not just been completely vegetarian or completely vegan? Okay. Well, firstly, I think it's been really great for me. I've enjoyed it. Uh, said I've got more into cooking from non-Western cuisines myself, and I felt really good on it. So I, I became vegetarian. This was, I'm talking about 1970, 71. And really, you know, there were very, very few vegans there. I, I didn't know the word, what the word vegan meant in 1970. Most people didn't. I think there was a vegan society in Britain, which I later found out about, which was founded in the 1940s during the Second World War. It had 300 members. And I think that was probably most of the vegans in, in Britain at the time. It was really not something that anyone knew about. And a lot of people thought that, you know, yes, you can be a vegetarian. There was a vegetarian society that had thousands of members. But, you know, you might be missing out on essential nutrients if you go vegan. And, you know, that's not entirely false because it is advisable to take B12 if you're vegan. It's um, difficult to get B12 from plant sources, but it's easy to get up. Just to even clarify, it's even difficult to get B12 if you eat animal products at the moment anyway because of the depletion in the soil. Yeah, that may be true. I'm not, uh, I haven't really followed, followed up on that. But yes, it's probably a good thing to take you know, B12 and check your B12 levels anyway, whether you're vegan or not. So that was one thing that uh, I think was useful to take. But, uh, so you know, my wife and I became uh, vegetarian, as I say, in, um, right at the beginning of 1971. And we were happy with that. But Going vegan was a very significant step further, and I guess my my wife is is not really keen to do that. So you know, living in a household together, it took me a while to gradually avoid the dairy products, and um, I think that's that's the one that I still feel strongest about because I think for dairy products you have to make the cows pregnant every year, and then you have to take their calf away from them so that humans can can have the milk. And, you know, cows are mammals. Their mothers really very have a strong bond with their offspring. And uh, dairy farmers will tell you stories that they take the calf away at a certain place. The cows, when they pass that spot again, will even, you know, days, weeks later, will still stop and look around and call out for the calf. Um, they associate that with the loss of their of their child. So I think that's a pretty heartless industry, really, and better to avoid. But it took a while, and so I'm, I'm not absolutely strict about um, about that either. And as I've mentioned, I think sometimes you can get free range eggs, which you know you might consider to be a reasonable life for the hens, and, and not too bad. So I don't think, it, you know, we, we were talking about this at the beginning. I don't think it's important to be absolutely pure. 
I think it's important to live in a way that you're comfortable with, that is minimizing to the best of your abilities the contribution that you make to producing animals, to encourage the producers to produce more animals and animal products, and particularly to produce animals in industrial animal agriculture, which is such a nightmare really for the animals and does not produce uh, wholesome food and pollutes the local environment. Anybody who's lived near a factory farm will tell you that they absolutely stink and there's thousands of flies around them. They pollute local water and rivers. And for greenhouse gases, they're a disaster as well. Mm. I always say this, but we vote with our dollar and every time we are purchasing animal products from factory farms, we are saying that we support that, we believe in that, we endorse that. And if, like in your heart, you don't, then just be mindful of where you are spending your money. It's really important. And it starts with us. You know, the choices that we make in our home really do move the needle. Like you said, there's been huge progressions. Still a long way to go, but there's been huge progressions. So it starts with us and our choices. And as a parent of a young child, it's really important for me that we teach our daughter about animal rights. She's only two and a half. She absolutely loves animals, loves them. Cows, horses, kangaroos, dogs, we see these every single day where we live. And it can be pretty uncomfortable to have that conversation for a lot of people. No one wants to traumatize their child by having these conversations and sharing what's really going on. So what do you think parents should be teaching their children in a respectful way? Like, how do we approach this? Do you have any tips for talking about this stuff with young kids? And how can we do it in an appropriate way that is going to be kind for their hearts and their mind and their soul? Yeah, well, certainly I'm, I'm a couple of generations ahead of you in this because uh, we had uh, three daughters. We brought them up vegetarian, of course. And now the oldest one just had her 50th birthday and they're all the other two are in their 40s. And they're all still vegetarian, which is really great because sometimes your children rebel against you, but uh, they didn't or not in this respect. They're happy with what they're eating. And they have children now themselves and their children are vegetarian as well. So yeah, I think it's easier if they start that way and they don't get into the habit of eating meat. And in fact, kids, small children do have a natural love for animals. And once they understand that what they're eating when you give them meat is an animal who's been killed to be turned into that meat, quite a few of them do rebel. You know, there's a lovely video online that goes viral that's gone viral about a really small child sitting in a high chair saying, I won't eat meat, I won't eat meat. And you know, it's because the child knows that it's a it's a dead animal. And uh, you know, the, the parent is not pushing the child, the parent is just you know, interested in the child's reaction, obviously. And I think that that's that's the, the way to do it. Just as they grow older, they have to have obviously greater understanding, you know, but at first you can simply say something really simple like, you know, we love animals and we don't want them hurt to be made into our food and, and we don't need to eat them. And then as they get older and they go to school and they realize that other people do eat meat, you tell them a little bit more about that and why you're doing this. And you say, you know, yes, I know some people do, but Maybe they don't understand just how badly animals are treated mostly to be turned into meat and 
Yeah, so I think it's probably a little easier now because they're not going to be as strange uh, as they were 50 years ago when we were bringing up our oldest child because then there were still very few vegetarians, maybe a little more than when we became vegetarian, but uh, still very few. And now it's pretty normal and now people will ask when they're serving food, you know, what your dietary restrictions might be. And so they, they cope with that. And some institutions are even going vegetarian, actually. You know, I was for many years at, at Monash University in, in Melbourne, and I have a niece who's actually teaching at Monash now, and she just sent me something from the Dean of Arts saying that the Faculty of Arts at Monash is going vegetarian. So for all corporate meals, all, all meals that are paid for, hosted by the Faculty of Arts at Monash, they're all going to be vegetarian. So I hope other faculties and other universities will follow suit whether they're doing that for the animals or for climate change or for personal health, doesn't really matter. It, it all has a, a positive effect. So I encourage those moves, whatever the, the reason for them. Mm -hmm. We have spoken about being really conscious of where our animal products are coming from, whether they're coming from factory farms or not. What else can we look out for? Like, I just want everyone to be really mindful that if you choose to buy animal products, that you are buying them from sustainable, organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, biodynamic, like the best quality that you possibly can, what else can we look out for? What else can we do to really help this animal issue? Uh, well, you've already mentioned earlier on uh, cosmetic products and other products that might be tested on animals. and it's easier to get those alternatives that are not now. So that's uh, not too bad. And I think, you know, one of the issues when I first got into this, one of the quite big issues was fur. And, you know, furs are also produced very often from fur farms where I've, I've actually seen in, in Finland, I got taken by an animal group to look at a fur farm with these beautiful uh, Arctic foxes kept in small wire cages where they were just constantly turning around, you know, instead of running through miles of land to uh, freely. They were closely confined just, just for the fur and, and mink as well. So it, that seems to be less of an issue now. You don't see people wearing furs as much as you used to. So I don't think that's so much of a problem. But still, you know, again, look out for it on in clothing, look out for animal products that you don't need to be wearing. The other thing I would say is is get political. You know, we're fortunate to live in, in democracies where we can have a political influence. So let your political representatives, your members of parliament or members of Congress, if you're in the United States, know that you care about this issue. And if they're standing for election, you want to know what their policies are. Are they going to support change? Are they going to support promotion of plant-based diets or reduction in meat consumption? Are they going to try and stop subsidies to um, animal agriculture, which are wasteful and harmful for the environment? Are they going to take account of the greenhouse gas emissions of animals? A lot of politicians run away from that. They're, they're okay to talk about promoting electric vehicles, but they're not okay to talk about promoting plant-based foods instead of beef or lamb or other meats that emit a lot of greenhouse gases. So let them know that uh, you're concerned about these issues and you want change in this area. Make it a, a serious political question. Yes, I love that. Such great tips. 
If you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, besides your incredible books, I think they should definitely be in the curriculum. What is one other book you would choose? Whoa, that's not easy. I've got, um, you know, a lot of favorite books. For schools, I think um, some of the work that Jane Goodall has done is terrific because obviously she's got a lot of knowledge of animals. She was a pioneer in understanding chimpanzees, our, our closest relatives, but she's also then become a strong animal advocate. There's uh, a, a number of books that she's either written or co-authored at different ages for, for young people because she has this uh, sort of Roots and Shoots program about trying to get more people to understand where their food comes from. So for schools, I think some of those books would be terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. I was just reading Jane Goodall to my daughter last night. Oh, really? Yes. There's these beautiful range of kids' books that take like Bruce Lee and Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and they uh, just short versions for children. So I cannot remember the name of them, but I will link to it in the show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. This has been incredibly empowering to hear this information. And I know for a lot of people, it might be confronting, but we really can make a change for the planet and for the animals. Like we can make a difference. And like I said before, our choices that we make in our home really do make a difference. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything else that you think we really need to think about? I think we need to think about ourselves and our values. You know, that's something I often talk about with my students, particularly with, with young people at the beginning of their career. Hopefully, they've got a long life to live, and that means a lot of opportunities to do good, but also they could be missing a lot of opportunities. Uh, I know a lot of people that kind of drift into a career because some career counselor says this is what they'll be good at or talented at, or they think they'll earn uh, a reasonable amount of money there. But it might not be in harmony with their values. And I think that's not a recipe for a good life to spend most of your working hours doing something that you don't really endorse and support for itself. So I think it's important to think about what you're doing with your life, to think about what your basic values are. Is one of them to try to make the world a better place? I hope it is. And I know a lot of people who've taken that seriously, who've worked in ways that they know do make the world a better place and who are really feeling fulfilled and satisfied with their lives because of that. So I would encourage people, you know, we've been talking about animals and, and what to eat, but that should be a part of a larger approach to life, which says, I don't want to be complicit in making things worse for any sentient being, human or non-human, and I do want to help making people, making life better for people and for animals. And I think there's a lot of opportunities there. There's, there's something called the effective altruism movement that I've um, had a role in, in starting. And I think it's good if people look at that. You can Google effective altruism and see what you find. There are discussion groups online. It's not all about, you know, some of it is about uh, reducing suffering for animals. Some of it is about helping people in extreme poverty. I founded a charity called The Life You Can Save, which works to recommend the most effective organizations helping people in extreme poverty. So take a broader picture, take a broader stance about what you can do for the world. And I think you'll find that a more satisfying life. Mm, absolutely. So beautiful. Thank you for all the work that you're doing in the world and 
for helping the planet, the animals, everyone. Thank you so much. You are serving so many people. You're helping so many people. You're being a voice for animals that don't have the voice. So how can I and the listeners give back and serve you today? Well, you already are by helping me to reach a wider audience, the people who uh, listen to and, and watch you. And that's great. And if all of those there will also spread the message on through their social media, talk to people about it, look out for Animal Liberation Now, which should be in bookstores, or make sure your bookstore carries it or your library, and spread the word about that. You know, that's, that's the best thing that you can do to help, I think. Beautiful. We can definitely do that. And we will link to all of your incredible work and your books in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here, Peter, and for sharing and for all the work that you do in the world. Thanks, Melissa. Great to talk to you. I truly hope that this conversation has inspired you to just know deep in your heart that you can make a difference and to be more conscious with every decision that you make for yourself. Think about the effects on the planet, on animals, and on your health every time you make a decision. You can make a difference. I loved this conversation. I hope you did too. And if you did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now, come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you. Now, before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here for wanting to be the best, the happiest, and the healthiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you and your family, for the planet, and for the animals. You are amazing. Now, please do me a favor and share this episode with anyone in your life, because we all need to hear it. It's really important stuff. So you can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to people, text it to people, just do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.